Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. You probably remember that poem slash story. It comes in different forms, but it's called Footprints in the Sand. Do you know what I'm referring to? So in the story, this man who looks back on the journey of his life as a walk on the beach sees two sets of footprints, and then there were times when there were only one set of footprints, and the uh, one set of footprints happened to occur whenever his life was very toilsome. And he asked God, why did you drop me? Why did you leave me alone? And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. When you saw one set of footprints, it was then that I had carried you. There's a sweet sentiment in that. But I suppose my most memorable uh, experience of seeing that particular poem slash story was in the apartment of a friend of mine who was an avowed atheist. And, uh, and he has his uh, walls covered with very fancy, expensive metropolitan art. But in the midst of all of it is this garish-looking plate with the footprints poem on it. And I didn't know if he was trying to be, like, kitschy on purpose. You know how people do that? They try to be so kitschy that it's in style. But it didn't fit with the rest of the art. And so I asked, what's this about? Why would you have this here, especially given his own epistemology and, and lack of theology? And he said, well... I hope it's true, and I can't stand the thought of being alone. I mean, he wanted to be carried, too. I mean, don't you want to be carried? I mean, don't you want a companion? I think that's what I want to focus on today with you is the companionship um, that Joseph experienced. You know, we're in, in this series on the Old Testament patriarch Joseph, and he started off rather grandly and egotistically. Uh, as a man who had experienced great uh, revelations about his future and uh, was a little braggadocious regarding those revelations, but his hopes were seemingly dashed as his brothers betrayed him, thought about killing him, and instead sold him off into slavery. And now he's the great isolated, lonely man. He's lost his country. He's lost his father. He's lost his brothers. He's lost his status. And he lost his symbol of belovedness, which was his garment, you know, the coat of many colors. And so uh, he is a man who is now dehumanized, sold off, and taken into Egypt. And by the way, for a Hebrew person, being taken into Egypt, especially within the Old Testament, is the rough equivalent of being taken into hell. Because Egypt in the Old Testament represents the archetypal tyranny. But in the midst of this hellacious period of his life, Joseph discovers something that always stays with him. He discovers that he's not alone, that he has a companion. And in this passage, we see that there's really two sorts of companionship. There's a lively companionship and a lethal companionship. And I want to speak about both this morning, the lively as well as the lethal forms of companionship. We'll begin with the lively companionship because that's where our passage starts off. And this is roughly verses 1 to 6. And in this uh, new chapter of the story, we discover a new present, transcendent reality within the Joseph uh, uh, story, uh, and that has to do with God. Namely, God appears for the first time in this story. 
uh, God takes center stage. And I want you to notice the language of withness in this passage. This is verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him, that is Joseph. And verse 21, at the very end of the story, he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. And so God who, uh, of course, was assumed to be part of the narrative from the start, is now taking center stage. Uh, we know that Joseph has a companion, that he's not isolated in his isolation, but he has somebody there with him, uh, carrying him through. And, uh, and there are a few deductions we can make from this statement, or these statements of withness. The first thing is this, God is not exiled from a tyranny. So Egypt is not a protectorate that casts off the, the power, the invasive power of Yahweh. Now, you might think, well, that's no big deal. Of course, we believe in God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. Well, it's not a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to them. Nobody in the ancient world believed in omnipresence. Everybody believed that every little deity had a fiefdom, a, a particular niche interest, and mostly a niche area of geography that they would hover over. But here we see Yahweh invading hell itself, invading the archetypal tyranny of Egypt. And so he is not some land-based deity that hovers over Canaan. He is the, the God of all things and of all creation. The second thing we see is that God's presence here in Egypt, in the archetypal tyranny, implies that God's providence was the one who led Joseph into the tyranny. That is, God if he is with him in Egypt, was also with him to get him into Egypt. Uh, and so there may be, in fact, we know from the end of the story, there is a divine directive and causation behind what seems to be Joseph's life of trouble and difficulty. That even in the midst of trouble and difficulty, God was there with him hand in hand. Lastly, uh, the withness of God connects Joseph to the grand history of his ancestors. This withness language, it didn't begin with Joseph. It started with Abraham. That God was with Abraham, giving Abraham this grand covenant. And that God was with Abraham's uh, son, Isaac. And that God was with Isaac's son, Jacob. Uh, and now God is with Jacob's son, Joseph. There's something about this family history going back to a divine promise that God pledged to this family that I will be with your family always, and through your family, all other families will be deeply helped. And I want to just tell you that this is the means, the withness, this is the means by which God interrupts the human death spiral and brings life into a decaying history. He does it through attachment. He attaches to people. He attaches to Joseph just like he attaches to you. Uh, God companions himself with people. That's how he engages in history. Most of the time, it's not through lightning and tempest. It's through joining to you. It's through attaching to you and your story and your life, taking the grand truth and wisdom and the, the meta story, the Germans would say the Heilgeschichte, the holy history of God, and tethering it to your story, invading your story, and unifying those stories so that they overlap. That's God's way. He companions himself to people, and not just people, but desperately stupid people, troubled people, divided people. Consider Abraham, right? 
This is why you can never or will never hear a moralistic sermon from this pulpit that says something stupid, like be like Abraham. Because if you read the life of Abraham, you would be like, you know what? I don't know if I really want to be like him. And that's the right response. I mean, Abraham is desperately flawed, you know? I mean, he starts off as a pagan moon worshiper in Iraq, and then and he's barren. Um, he and his wife don't have children, which back then was, a, was seen as a slight from the heavens. And even after he discovers God, he's terribly duplicitous. He, he lies a lot. He doesn't have his life figured out. And God says, I want you. I want to be with you. And then there's Jacob, schemer, wrestler with God, deeply troubled. You know, he manipulates people excellently well. He's very passive aggressive. And God says, I want to be with you. And what does God do? He takes these ordinary, feeble, stupid people like me. And says, I, I'm attaching myself. And because I'm attaching myself, the whole world will begin to lift up. Everything will get better because of this relationship, because of this attachment. And so God was with Joseph. And that's what happens in this story time and time again. We'll hear that language again. And I want you to notice the effect of this withness. Notice, how is Joseph doing in the archetypal tyranny? He's flourishing. He's flourishing. In other words, Joseph is not destroyed by his context. Joseph is not weighed down right now. Joseph had a, a life and a series of losses that could cause him to fall into resentment and despair and hatred of the heavens like Job's wife, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he recognizes that he may have a part in a grander story and that he's with God. And out of that flows this life that is in alignment, increasing alignment with reality. Uh, <clears throat> even later in the next chapter uh, of his story, and we read a little bit of this today, when Joseph is again in a pit in a hellacious prison, he still flourishes. He can't keep the man down. Why does he still flourish in whatever context he's present in? Because of the one who's attached to him. It's because of the lively attachment of God. That's the difference. Joseph knew the one to whom he belonged. He had the highest principle and knew he belonged to the highest principle and, and uh, person. And that caused him uh, to, to flourish. By the way, this whole notion of attachment is principalized in the New Testament. We had Eric read it for us today, where Jesus is saying to his audience, I know you have all these concerns about you know, where you're going to get your clothes. Do you shop at the outlet mall or do you go to the Salvation Army? You're very worried about this. And I know you're worried about your diet and whether Atkins is right for you or whether the zone is better. Well, nobody does the zone anymore, but um, whatever. You have a lot of thoughts, but they're down the list. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that you're paranoid about will work themselves out. Everything else will be figured out as long as you attach yourself and you understand that you belong to the highest of principles that gives you the greatest of dignity. Everything else will work itself out. Um, and this is the point, I think, that we're supposed to glean from this narrative, that when we have our primary identity secured in the highest reality, we have a life that is like a rising tide that lifts all boats. That is, if you get the thing with God right, you live in alignment with God, everything else in your life is readjusted for the betterment of you, your family, and everybody around you. 
That's the power of integrity, by the way. That's the power of implicit righteousness. It was interesting. A few years ago, I had a friend who started to, after a grave loss, started to hoard things terribly. And their house wasn't disgusting, but it was getting there. You know, uh, um, So it was just too cluttered, and there was too much going on. And they were very ashamed of it, right? So they stopped having people over, and they stopped having dinner parties, and, the, and they stopped connecting with people, and, and they started getting sick, and they were depressed, and... And so, uh, but there was a turnaround at one point. And I said, what made the turnaround? And she said, I, I ended up um, praying to God. And I said, give me one thing. I can't, it's too overwhelming right now to fix my house. There's too much to do. And I don't have the energy to do it at the end of the day. But can you give me one thing? Inspire me, please, to do one thing. Give me the energy to do one thing. And, and, and I'll do it. And she did. She had this, like, word that she should just deal with her dining room, which was a mess. But she dealt with it, and it looked beautiful. Dealt with the dining room. She even took a picture of it and sent it to me. Uh, and then she had people over for donuts in her dining room. And that was the first time people had come over in years. And she said, well, that wasn't that bad. And, and so she took another step. She dealt with her kitchen. And then she started cooking for people again. You know, she was no Sydney Enrica. She's not making pizza, you know, like homemade <laughs> food. But she, right... But she was like cooking a little bit. And then she felt a little better about herself. And then her depression started to break. And she started to have better friendships again and connect. And then her house slowly became, you know, it's never going to be, uh, you know, what Martha Stewart would want. But it's, it's healthy. You, could go, you can go in and breathe free. And you don't feel anxious. And you don't feel sad. Uh, and that's what happens when the, the kingdom starts to reorient things. And when you have a reoriented life in light of God, um, it readjusts everything around you. All boats are lifted in the rising tide. And that's what Joseph is discovering with this lively, life-giving companion that he has in God. If only that's how the story ended. Because enter a lethal companion. This is verses 7 through 20. It's the bulk of the passage. You know, companionship with God does mean a readjustment, but it's not always an easy readjustment uh, for everybody around you. Uh, and it doesn't mean the absence of adversity. I, I really wish like a relationship with God would mean like milk baths at the spa. Actually, that doesn't sound appealing to me, but maybe it would sound appealing to you. I just wish it were a life at Wendy's. But, um, but what I'm discovering is that, you know, every garden has a serpent, right? Uh, and, and, and here we, we, we see um, the entrance of a, of a woman from the cast of Desperate Housewives. Uh, she's married to the general, and she's, for whatever reason, unsatisfied in her present marital relationship. And she spies this opportunity for a little adventure. Maybe she's having a little midlife crisis and figures that she's missed out on some things in her youth. And she, you know, withheld some of her passions. And she sees this... Uh, she sees this young man who's really good looking and he and he's intelligent and he has some integrity and he's like the forbidden fruit right and so she's really after him and uh, and so this is like an episode from to catch a predator because she really is a predator she's a resistant she's a resilient predator she's really after him this is sort of a me too movement and by the way the whole me too movement's not a joke a lot of people have experienced uh, life threatening abuse from people who have power who misuse their power to um, to seduce and destroy other lives and what this woman is doing is uh, is deeply complex because she invites Joseph into this intimate relationship right she doesn't want a friend 
She wants an intimate relationship, and she says it to him twice, lie with me. Now, in English, in English, that yields a double meaning. It means be intimate with me, and let's deceive people with the nature of our relationship. And I think both things are in some ways uh, demonstrated within this uh, very text. Lie with me. What a complex situation is before us, right? Lots of issues at play that make this notoriously complex. First, there are gender issues at play. In this day and age, men clearly have the upper hand, but not in this situation, where a woman, because she's married to the general, has the upper hand over Joseph. But there are also racial issues at play, and she points these out in her charge. It's this Hebrew that you gave to me. This Hebrew. There are racial issues at stake between Egyptians and Hebrews. There are religious issues at play, because one is a pagan Egyptian and one is a a believing uh, Hebrew and Jew. And there are positional issues at play. One is a member of the royal caste and the other is a slave. And because of that, there are reprisal issues at play. Potiphar's wife has very little to lose. Joseph, if he doesn't play ball, has everything to lose. And so there's this invitation to mate, to have an intimate companionship. She invites Joseph to blur the lines and to soil his integrity for a momentary pleasure. And it reminds me of how sin was operative in the story of Cain. There's a lot of resemblance between the Joseph narrative and the Cain and Abel narrative. Uh, And in one particular point in the Cain story, right before Cain murders his brother Abel, he's very upset with God for not accepting his salad sacrifice. So he complains, and God engages with him and says this, and the Hebrew is very kind of unnervingly descriptive. God says this to Cain, sin crouches at your door. It desires you to dominate you but you must rule over it. Now, what's not often rendered in English is the sensual language of that passage. What it's really saying is that sin is crouched at your door like a tigress or a creature that wants, and I'll use PG language, to have its way with you and produce something with you. It wants to dominate you but you must rule over it. In other words, sin, this is the way sin is. It wants to make an unholy union with you to devastate your humanity and corrupt you. It's a seduction metaphor and image. And the same thing is seen here, only on a grander scale. Sin wishes to have its way with Joseph and corrupt his very character, his very being. And I want to tell you, that's almost always the way of evil. Evil always involves a seduction, a bait. Why? Because if evil just showed itself to you, along with its long list of consequences, you would run 500 miles away. So instead, it has to seduce you, make you feel important, good-looking, interesting. And that without it, whatever the agent is it's offering, you would be incomplete And so it lures you in. It wants to have its way with you. And that's what she wants in this story. And I want you to notice this persistent offer that the housewife is making to Joseph. Um, Companion yourself to me. Lie with me. And to think to yourself, which is easier, to say yes or no? 
to acquiesce or to abstain? I think it's a tricky question to some degree because to acquiesce is always easier in the moment. It's always easier because it leads to less stress and conflict. To say no, especially in a tense situation, leads to very unpredictable outcomes. But to say yes in the immediate, which is easier, offers then a future that is laden with pain and difficulty and maybe a pain from which you'll never recover. But Joseph preferred one companionship to the other. He preferred the companionship of the lively to the companionship of the lethal. And he says in verse 9, calling on the transcendent person of God, he says in verse 9 to this woman, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is, for me to do this with you would be a betrayal of my primary connection, my primary companion. It would defy my relationship with him, and that is superior to my relationship with you, and even to my relationship with this particular master. And notice what that act of integrity did for Joseph. It cost him in the short run, but I will say this. Everything good in his life hinged upon this no. Everything good in his life hinged upon this moment and him saying no to this woman. This one act of integrity gave him a character and a strength that later, that later enabled him uh, to save his family, to save two countries from starvation, to save the lives of hundreds of thousands who benefited in Egypt and beyond Egypt because of his strength and because of his no, because he knew to whom he belonged ultimately. His no rescued a country. This integrity gave him an asset and made him a responsible leader under the Pharaoh. And because of it, he became higher than Potiphar. And functionally, in terms of what he was able to do, higher than the Pharaoh. That comes later. I think there's a danger, friends, as when we talk about sin. And uh, I think I can put it this way. We can easily become cynical about sin instead of hopeful about sin. Now, here's what I mean. We can become cynical about the effects of sin where we get depressed about it and we, and we look at our own lives and our own tattered experience and conclude, you know, this is always just going to be unavoidable. We're always going to be devastated. Nothing's ever going to get better. Like a dog returns to its vomit, we're always going to go back to that which is reprehensible and just keep doing it all the days of our lives. It was true of my father, true of my grand grandmother, true of whomever. It will be true for me. It's unavoidable. I'm stuck forever and ever. Amen. And we think that somehow that's like a Christian understanding. That that kind of paralysis is in fact God's revelation and God's will for our lives. And uh, I, I want to say that there is some wisdom in being what I call a sin pessimist. Like, sin is deeper and darker than we could ever imagine. That's totally true. It's far more invasive in our lives, destroying our wills and our hearts than we could possibly conceptualize. At the same time, it is very dangerous to be a sin pessimist without also being a grace optimist. That we have to realize that when God is your companion, um, he can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And the atoning love of God does give birth to new possibilities and new pluck and new courage. 
And who says that you have to be dominated by a dark past? Where is that written? Who says that you have to replicate the toxic effects of what you experienced in your growing up years? Where is that written? Who says that you have to be paralyzed in nature's night? Who says that your life has to be a purgatorial hellscape? Where is that written? It's untrue. Not when God is involved. This is like the risen Jesus you're dealing with. And when he attaches to you, I mean, grand things are possible. There's more to you than you. There's been an arrangement from heaven. Uh, And so I think it's important to be a grace optimist as well as a sin pessimist, sin pessimist, you know. And I think the brightest of futures hinges upon this moment of needful integrity in Joseph. When he said no, even though it cost him a little bit, it gave him a steel spine and a perspective for the future that we'll see, and we'll see how that traces out. It reminds me of the encounter between uh, Frodo, the great ring bearer, and Gandalf the wizard in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, They were uh, speaking about Gollum. You may remember this particular scene, that that Gollum, the dark creature whose ring of power was originally stolen by Frodo's uncle Bilbo. And uh, there was a a scene in which Bilbo, uh, armed with a sword, could have killed the vile creature, but he didn't do it. And years later, Frodo looks back on that event and says, "What, uh, what a tragic waste when he could have killed that thing. This is what he says to Gandalf. It's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Gandalf responded, pity? It's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Don't be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in this story, and the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. The same can be said for Joseph's courageous no at this point. Well, let me conclude with two words, one about a lively companion and a lethal companion as they relate to us. First, the lively companion. There is one who will always make you spring to life, not just in this current darkened age, but also in the age to come. God has, through Christ, developed an attachment to you. And so whether you're in the promised land of glory or you're in an Egyptian hellscape, uh, your mountains and your valleys and everything in between will be filled with God. There is nowhere you can go to escape the attachment that God has made to you through the beautiful and horrific sacrifice of his son, And that is signed and sealed today in this baptismal water. What is baptism? Baptism is companionship. Baptism says bonding. It says that we are buried with Jesus in his death, and we are risen with Jesus in his new life. It is a sign and seal of that kind of bonding and attachment and companionship. Uh, And as we live into this new bonded, companioned identity, all boats are lifted in that redemptive rising tide. And so that's what we pray for today for Beatrice, that she will be claimed by this story and that everybody will be better off because she is bonded with God. So that's your lively companion that is with you in all times and places. And that gives us perspective whenever we experience life's lethal companions. You know, there's many faces of seduction out there, and they're different for every, every person. And they seek, those faces seek to derail you and demolish your present integrity 
and to take away an uplifting future. Uh, and there is a seduction in the concept of the lethal, right? Because if we live into the lethal, we can get a momentary sense of freedom. Now I am not accountable to anything. I can do what I want and have whatever I wish at whatever time I wish for it. I'm totally free from external constraints. And that sounds really great for a season until you invent hell until you demolish the world, until you start realizing that the more you engage in that kind of pathological behavior, the more the tide lowers and all boats crash against the rocks with the lowering tide. Uh, whenever we bond with the powers of darkness, everyone is harmed. Everyone is harmed. But here's the thing about your story and mine, and I know it as well as you, that we will fall for the lies of the lethal. It's just our nature. But when we do... God intervenes and says, this is not the end of your story. You know, there was one exception, one man who never bred with evil. In fact, the Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. And because of that man, we have confidence to say, along with St. Paul, that if it, or St. John, rather, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So no matter how many lethal voices you've listened to and how many lethal companions you've made, there is a lively companion who will never let you go and who will rescue you eventually from all the effects of the lethal, who will cut away those bonds and give you hope and a future. Amen. Realize they took your life. They could not take your